0: You sum me up in a nutshell. Um, so that's great. Thank you. And um how long am I speaking for? Uh till 10 till 5 till 50 okay. minutes. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you, Grace Group, for having me. I'm Alice. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And um, really happy to be here. Whew. The first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I ever went to, um, it was sometime in December, 2012. And I don't remember what possessed me. I I had been tired of myself and tired of drinking for quite a long time um, by then and already trying to stop and couldn't do it. And I, I vaguely remember Googling AA and um, having to have a few drinks before I could leave the house. And went down to this group not far from my house, traditional, and um, walk in and and um, I I took a seat as close to the door as I could, you know, because I didn't want to make any commitments about you know sticking around or anything. I didn't want to appear too eager and everyone was really nice like really nice like they all knew each other's names they're hugging each other and they're laughing and they're introducing themselves to me and um patting my shoulder and telling me it's going to be okay and, and i was crying and, and i sat through the whole the whole thing and the meeting's there an hour and a half so i really i mean i really tried and at the end, when I went to leave, all these women surround me and they're giving me their phone numbers and they're, um, they're assuring me that, that they understand where I'm at and they keep coming back. And they're giving me brochures and their phone numbers and stuff. And I had a brief, brief thought of, yeah, I'll come, I'll come back. And then one woman said, please keep coming back. She says, I've been sober for 30 years this works. And I was like, <laughs> I ran out of there and, and went to the liquor store. And, um, cause I thought, you know, I, I knew one of your sayings was one day at a time. I'm not going to one day at a time for 30 years. Like that's ridiculous. And I still have to go to meetings at 30 years. Like it, nothing. My life was already miserable. And you're going to take my alcohol away on top of that. Like, I don't want anything you have. And I know you guys talk about God but you also talk about doorknobs. So I I left there knowing that I had tried AA and knowing that AA doesn't work. Um, Well, actually a few days later, I, um, I realized that a bunch of the ladies in that meeting were knitting. So I thought, oh, they keep their hands busy. And I went and got myself some yarn and knitting needles. And I tried for like a minute and a half to knit and I was like, couldn't do it. And I threw the needles across the room and went back to my little bottle of Chardonnay. I'm like, geez, you know, and, um, and after that, I, I really knew that I had to do something. Um, and so I did a lot of journaling, a lot of therapy extra going to the gym. Um, Lots and lots and lots of therapy and, um, you know, stocking up on non-alcoholic beverages, promising myself that I can drink tonight, just not during the day, not at work or maybe at work, but not on my lunch hour or not until my lunch hour or, or maybe I'll take an early lunch and I can drink then, but then nothing in the afternoon, like every day was like that. I tried to just not drink a day at a time. And I wasn't going to be an alcoholic in the first place because my dad's one. I grew up with an alcoholic dad and um, grew up just outside of Chicago. And um, dad, it, he was always super funny and witty and clever and very talented, very artistic. He would paint these amazing paintings. And yet when he was drinking, all of that went out the window. It was like his IQ would suddenly plummet and there was nothing clever about the man and he would be abusive and like just a, a total change. And I could tell it happened when he had a can of Strohs in his hand or a bottle of Jack. And it seemed like I could see no payoff. Like, why would you willingly do this when it makes you so mean and angry and dumb, you know? And so I was grateful when at, um, at 21, I finally fled home and um, got in my little red Honda CRX and drove out to California, um, out to Sacramento. And I thought I was going to the ocean, <laughs> not the ocean here, um, but I landed here. And, um, and, you know, a big part of my leaving was, it was very abrupt. It was just, I was dating a guy at the time who, who said, you know, I have a brother in Sacramento. If you ever want to, I'm like, Yep, let's go. The car's already packed. (laughs) Like, let's go. I told my parents one day, um, I'm moving to California tomorrow. And they're like, excuse me? I just left. Um, I don't handle conflict very well. I didn't want to have a discussion about it. I just left. And um, getting out here to California, it feels like um, it was immediate. I really don't know how many days passed, but I um, got a job and met people who partied and I I started drinking and oh my God, it didn't turn me into my dad. Not at all. Like I didn't get dumb. I didn't get mean. In fact, I was nicer and probably funnier and cuter. Like it was amazing. And, you know, so all these fears I had in my teens of like, I can't touch alcohol. Um, and I tried other things, you know, I definitely had that, um, not feeling a part of that. I think every human being probably goes through. It's not unique to alcoholics or alcoholism, but that feeling of, you know, I don't fit in and I'm uncomfortable. And how do I fix this? I want to numb out and trying all kinds of different substances and behaviors to, to try to treat that. And, um, but, you know, not really drinking much alcohol at all in my teens because I was so afraid of turning into dad. And so I was relieved when I didn't turn into dad. And I um, I relate to Bill's story so much in her book. I felt like I had arrived, and you know, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor, and then it became um, a necessity. It wasn't a luxury. I don't know when that happened. I really have no idea. Like I I look back on those early years of drinking, and exactly like the book says, like there's no way of knowing if I could have stopped because I sure didn't try. I didn't try to control it back then. So I don't know when I um, crossed that line into being beyond human aid, lost the power of choice. I have no idea. Um, but at some point in my thirties, I was like, "Oh, well, I gotta do something about this. But I, not, not now, you know, I'll wait until like, at some point I gotta do something about this. At some point I'm gonna mature or pull my head out of my ass or maybe rock bottom will happen. I really really kept hoping rock bottom would happen to me. Mm-hmm. I would get pulled over for speeding and think, well, this is it. You know, I'm going to jail cuz you know, they're going to they're going to test me and they didn't test me. 3 times during the summer the year I get, finally did get sober. Um, I got pulled over for speeding. Each time I was drunk, alcohol in my body, bottle in my purse, and each time they let me go. And each time I had that mixture of relief, but also disappointment, because it was like, oh, this could have been it. This could have been it. Someone has to stop me. I'm not stopping myself. And I really thought rock bottom had to be an event, some intervening force, like a DUI or my husband leaving me or getting fired. And surely when that happens, of course, then, you know, I'll stop drinking. Um, and then, you know, after that one AA meeting, I thought, well, gosh, you know, I'm not hitting rock bottom. So I have to do something about this myself apparently. And then I tried all those things, the, the tons of therapy and journaling and, um, stocking up on non-alcoholic beverages, making sure there's no alcohol in the house, driving the other way, um, not passing by the liquor store, all of that. And I couldn't put eight hours together. I assumed that once I really want to stop, I'll just stop. I can't do it. And I don't understand why. Because all this time in my, you know, over 20 years, of alcoholic drinking, I can hold down a job, I can pay the bills, I'm going to the gym. How come I I seemingly have no say in the matter when it comes to alcohol, I don't get it. And this therapist that I started seeing, she wasn't an alcoholic and it ended up being kind of a good thing because she suggested all the things that didn't work. And I'll explain like each session, we would come up with some sort of strategy, avoidance techniques, identifying and managing triggers. And, and it would seem totally reasonable. Like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Let's do it like that. That'll work, you know, see you next week. Great. And then the next week I'd be like, I I don't, I, 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 I just, I kept drinking. Like, I don't, I don't know why. And she would totally baffled. (laughs) You know, she's just shocked. And, um, and I needed to see that because um, it helped me recognize how insane it was to keep picking up that first drink. One of my favorite tactics that we had, um, she would tell me, you know, like, drink whatever alcohol you have in the house at night. So then in the morning, there's nothing in the house. You won't drink before work and then um, pack a lunch and leave your wallet at home. So that way I'm sitting at my desk all day and no alcohol is available. I don't have money. I'll just be magically sober all day. And then I can pick up a bottle of wine if I really need to on the way home and drink that. But this is a way to stay sober during the day. What did I do on my lunch hour? (laughs) I had an hour lunch. And at the time, I worked at a place that's 30 minutes away from home. I drove like hell to go back home, get that wallet. (laughs) I would stop at the gas station and get some kind of alcohol and start drinking it on the way back to work. I get back to work just in time. I'm not late. Clock back in. That's how I spent my lunch hour. And somehow I feel victorious because I made it. And now I can have a little bit of a buzz in the afternoon. But then I feel sick. Why did I do this again? And I have to throw up underneath my desk and hope that the clients didn't smell my breath and feel really shaky on the ride home. But I'm victorious somehow. And then the next time I see that therapist, she said, How did it go? And I'm like, Well, I drank. Well, did you leave your wallet at home? Yeah. Well, how did you drink? I went back home to get it. And I'm saying these words up. I, I can. hear these words come out of my mouth and I'm like why do I keep changing my own mind baffled completely baffled so she says well why don't you go to AA and I'm like I already did I tried it (laughs) and she said the best thing she said well maybe AA isn't for everyone I'm like well now maybe it is for me (laughs) But she finally suggested that I check myself into a little detox and I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that because I had vacation time coming at work and I needed to, I I knew that if I spent that vacation time doing anything other than getting help, that I would kill myself. I wanted to. And um, there was just a tiny, tiny piece of me that still wanted to live. So we found this little place that's... um, not too far from here. And it's just a little five-day detox. And um, I didn't have any money or insurance at the time, but it wasn't, it it was expensive, but I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna put it on a credit card and I'll just not, I just won't pay the bill because I was totally comfortable doing that kind of thing. And um, they told me that they would have a bed ready for me on October 14th, this is 2013. And they told me that in early September. So for that next six weeks, I stopped going to therapy. I stopped exercising. I barely popped mints in my mouth. I drank the way I think I want to drink. Most miserable six weeks of my life. Whether I'm trying to control it, or I'm trying to enjoy it, there's no party. The Party is long over. And, you know, I told you that, you know, one of the things that I didn't really, I didn't want to go to AA, well, I mean, I, I had already tried it by that time, but, um, you know, you guys talk about God, but you also talk about doorknobs, like it doesn't make any sense. And I, and I knew that. I knew that you guys were going to do some ceremony where I have to pick which object in the room is going to be my higher power. And I'm not, I'm not into your little games. It's just it's weird and stupid. And I never believed in God growing up. You know, my parents very religious and I could see the hypocrisy in that, by the way, you know, um, and my sister, very religious, um, not me. So I kind of assume that faith is something that you're born with and I wasn't born with it. And I'm not really missing out on anything because I don't feel like, I don't think God's real, not really missing out on anything. And a few days before I am to check into this detox, I get an unexpected bonus in my paycheck that exactly covers the amount. It feels like a sign. Maybe, maybe there is something to this universe thing. Planets aligning. I don't know. Really, really odd. One of those really odd coincidences I can't quite figure out. And then the morning of October 14th, I'm packing my suitcase and um, my husband walked in on me drinking right out of a bottle. And he, he'd caught me before many times, you know, um, but this time, the disgust on his face, I don't ever wanna see that again. And, um, cause you know, by this time I'm telling him, I wanna get help. Like, I'm, I'm doing something about this, honey, I swear. I am gonna stop, I'm, do- I'm doing this. You know, and it's 9 a.m. on a Monday and I'm, you know, desperately getting as much as I can into my body. As fast as I can before I have to leave the house and go check in to not drink again? And my husband looked at me just disgusted and he said, Is that going to be your last drink? That question hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I realized in that moment, I didn't know the words in this book, but I internalized that I had lost the power of choice. I don't know how to have my last drink. How does anyone do that? How do I? I don't know how to have my last drink. I keep I thought I did before, and I keep picking up again even though I don't want to. What, what's wrong with me? And we get down to the detox, and they bring me back to my room. And there's a cat sitting on the on the bed. <laughs> Jeannie's already picked up on the fact that she's a crazy cat lady. Yes, I am. And um I see this cat sitting there and I just, it felt like, oh my God, like the universe is really speaking to me now. I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here now. In the now. And I fell to my knees and I started crying and I thought maybe there really is a God. I hope so. God, I hope so. That was my step one and step two experience. They happened to me. There was no writing assignment. There was no worksheet. It happened to me. And then this detox had the nerve to be right next to a little shack with NA meeting inside. <laughs> and um, when they made me go over there, <laughs> and that is like. I'm saying that as that's how I received all information. You're making me do this, you know, and um, I get over there and um, everyone was really nice. And they all knew each other's names and they asked me, they asked me mine and they're giving me phone numbers. And some of those people had like 30 years. And I'm like, hell yeah. I need this now. I want this. And um, and you guys start talking about God. And I heard the term in a totally different way than I'd ever heard the term before. It wasn't a threat. It wasn't some remote, mysterious, abstract concept. It was um, a source of love that might be available to me. And that FYI, I desperately need, because you guys are demonstrating a love and a peace sober that I hadn't witnessed or, or known existed. And a woman came up to me that day. And um, and she said, hi. Would you like me to be your sponsor? And I'm like, yeah, what's that? yes, whatever, whatever you're, yes, I don't, you know, you sing nice, please, yes, whatever you're offering, man, please, and um, the next day, October 15th, 2013, remains my sobriety date, and that is absolutely not my doing, absolutely not my doing, Alice needed the pull from that bottle on the 14th, and, um, I was only in that detox for five days and the day I checked out, um, I came home and changed my clothes and drove right back down there <laughs> and went into that meeting. And, um, because I was scared, you know, I, 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 still have a wallet and I know where the store is. I don't know how to not drink, but I know you guys know, and I'm going to hang out with you. And that meeting, by the way, happy hour rancho, um, became my home group and they talked freely about God, and freely about the big book, and freely about the steps, and they made it really clear that they were a lot of fun to hang out with, but that recovery is going to happen between meetings. Those people made it really clear they didn't have the power to keep me sober, and neither did I, and that if I wanted to stay sober, and if I wanted to demonstrate what they had been demonstrating to me, I better get busy. And so I did. I got into the book and um, started doing really weird things, like kneeling on the floor at a Starbucks and saying some biblical-sounding prayer with vows and wilt, and then um, and then I'm drawing columns on a piece of paper. And then I find out that my dad's not a villain after all, <laughs> like. I don't understand anything that's happening, you know, but I'm taking these actions and I'm showing up an hour early once a week to make coffee and I'm nicer to my husband and I'm more effective at work and things that used to really irritate me aren't irritating me anymore. And that's not me deciding to be kinder or more tolerant. That is this power that I just found out is real, changing me from the inside out. And none of it makes any sense, but I keep doing it. I keep moving my feet. And somewhere along the line, I realized that I hadn't thought about drinking. And for over 20 years, there wasn't much else in this head other than I need a drink. Can I smell my breath? How do I not drink? I need a drink. How do I not drink? What did I do? I can't do this tomorrow. I got to do this right now. Oh, holy cow. How do I not drink? I need to drink. Nothing like that. It's gone. I didn't know that was going to happen. I hadn't read that part in the book yet. What many refer to as the 10th step promises that the problem is removed. We haven't even sworn off. I hadn't read it yet, but I experienced it. And I was like, oh my God, you guys, (laughs) did you guys know about this? I'm not even thinking about it. I am not keeping myself sober. I am not avoiding alcohol. I'm not fighting it. I'm being restored to sanity. God's real. <laughs> and I should share that, you know, um, if I had been paying attention at work instead of drunk all the time, I would have ex. I would have known that that bonus was coming and I would have known the amount. <laughs> but I was so drunk all the time. I just, I, it was a surprise to me. And that cat that was sitting on the bed at the detox, her name is Trouble and she's still alive and she still lives there. And a buddy of mine now works at that detox and he sends me pictures of her all the time. And cats sit on beds. You know, so, so neither the bonus nor the cat were necessarily miracles, but I received them as miracles. So they were God's real. And as I'm experiencing this power flowing through me that I'm only tapping into because I was broken enough to follow directions broken enough to start facing the things that were blocking me from this power so I can access more of it. And as I'm doing the fourth step and I'm writing this stuff down on a piece of paper and I'm looking at my resentments, and I had some justified resentments that I wasn't going to be free of. I was raped when I was 13 by a stranger. And a doctor, our family doctor that treated me afterwards, because I had to go to the doctor afterwards, She was rude to me, a female, female doctor. She should have been nicer. And I'm writing all this stuff down. And then I find out that they're not villains, that they're just human beings. I didn't really internalize it, but actually we find out in the third step Any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Most humans are like that actor trying to run the show. Self-centeredness isn't unique to alcoholics, any human being on the planet. And isn't it possible that my dad wasn't an alcoholic so that he could be mean to me? Isn't it possible that that doctor was doing the very best she could given her training and her culture and her upbringing and the situations of the doctor's office on that day. And I start seeing one by one that all these people that I thought were villains, that I thought had wronged me and that I was right, I find out that they're just human beings, spiritually sick, some degree or another. As am I. Find out that I'm spiritually sick. (laughs) And then I can look at my mistakes, my faults. As an adult, I can see how self-centered i had been. Because, see, you couldn't tell me that. You couldn't tell me that I was selfish. You had to show me. You had to show me. And then I get to see that, you know, If all these other people were really the problem, then I have infinite problems. But if the problem is me relying on me, the problem's not Alice, it's Alice trying to rely on Alice, so it's the problem. And when I see that that self-reliance is the problem, that's not bad news, because there's a solution. God's already been changing me and I know that he can change me further. And I know that I can rely on him because I feel it. It's tangible. It's not theoretical anymore. I can feel it. It's real in my heart. And then I see that, oh, my God, I owe amends to my dad. (laughs) What? It's not what I came in here for. Totally flipped the narrative in my head, man. And I was somewhat relieved that, you know, my parents still live back in the Midwest. So when I got to the ninth step, I'm like, oh no, I can't go make face-to-face amends to them. <laughs> it's too far away. And um, within a couple days, my aunt in Arizona reached out to me and she was flying me out to Arizona for my cousin's wedding. And by the way, she's also flying out my parents. And I can take a weekend trip to Arizona much more quickly than I can all the way to the Midwest. So within a couple of days, I'm face to face with my parents. And yes, I do have to make amends to them. And I pull aside my dad and I start telling him, you know, I've had this drinking problem and I found Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm sober now. And I can see for the first time in my life what kind of daughter I've been. And I and I just, I want to do better. And I've never told you you're a good dad, but I need to tell you that. And I need to tell you I want to be a good daughter. And I want to apologize for some things. I start naming some things that I've done. And, and he says, what are you trying to do? He goes, you don't have to apologize to me for anything. I'm like, that's nice, but I kind of do. And then dad goes wait a minute, are you on your ninth step? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, proceed. <laughs> I don't like that. What a brat, right? He's in AA too. Just this past January, he celebrated 25 years. A few years after I fled home, he found the rooms. And I had been back to visit. They've been out here. I had in all the years, my entire drinking career, I had evidence that Alcoholics Anonymous works in the transformation of my own father. And yet I couldn't see it. That information didn't apply to me until I desperately had no other way out. And now dad and I, um, we've been to a bunch of meetings together and it's really weird and awkward and awesome. We're restored. And I get to live in a way today where there's not a single person on the planet that owes me an apology. My feelings rarely get hurt. And again, that's not me um, deciding to be more forgiving or deciding to be more patient or tolerant. That is this loving power blowing through me that has changed me from the inside out and the way I react to life. I just wanted a little bit of relief from the bottle. I had no idea what was in store. I had no clue. Thank God this works. Thank God. And then, you know, as I start learning how to practice 10 and 11 and then 12 that's when biggest game changer biggest game changer you know because I didn't understand what I was doing or any of the actions all of the steps felt separate to me like separate little individual concepts and separate little individual actions to take and um I was very foggy. (laughs) And and then when I started sponsoring others, I was like, oh, like things started clicking more and I can see the fluidity um, of the practices and the suggestions in this book. And I get this deeper appreciation for it. And I'm just falling in love with life and I'm falling in love with these women that I get to work with. I'm falling in love more with God and I'm less and less interested in myself although I also love and accept myself in a way that I never did before. So if I'd been seeking self-love, if I'd been seeking self-acceptance, I'd never receive it. I would just become more and more self-absorbed. But I seek God through helping others, and um, I'm good with me. I'm good. You know, when my sponsor was taking me through the steps, it felt kind of like when I'm driving somewhere and relying on GPS and I just turn when it says turn and I just get there, but like, well, I don't know how I got here. I just got here, you know? And then as I start taking others through the book and experiencing it more, it's like, oh, noticing the landmarks, you know? I know what signs are ahead. 10, 11, 12, keep me straight. Step 10 is my awareness you know, all throughout the day and I can usually catch my self-centeredness before I act on it. So it's, it's a very quick awareness, praying, and then turning to help somebody all day long. And step 11 is my double checks how my step 10 was. I ask God these questions at night. If I ask myself, I'm gonna get into that morbid reflection. Was I kind and loving toward all? No, you know, (laughs) but if I ask God, then I go to sleep. And on awakening, I think of my plans for the day. And I ask God to direct my thinking. And it'll pop in my head something that I missed from yesterday. And when it pops in my head through that God consciousness, it's not a oh man, what did I what did I do? It's oh all right, <laughs> let's go fix that. God's always love. Always. He's always available. I wasn't gonna do any of this stuff. Um, none of it. And a few years ago, I, um, when I went back on one of my trips to visit the folks, my mom pulls out um, this folder and she's, Oh, I found some old poems you wrote, Alice. I'm like, Oh, don't remember that. A bunch of poems written by Alice, age eight. I recognize it's my handwriting. What are the poems about? God. <laughs> I don't remember that at all apparently deep down in every man woman and child there's a fundamental idea of god it was there i was born with it i didn't know no idea a few years ago um pre-pandemic i was out at a um, coffee shop with a sponsee and we're reading the book and i'm never shy about reading the book even in public like I don't lower my voice. <laughs> and, um, and this young woman sat down at a table right next to us. And she goes, I can hear you. You're talking about alcoholism. And we're like, oh, yeah, we are. And she says, my mom's an alcoholic. Can I ask you a question? So we said, sure. What's your question? And she goes, why? That was the young lady's question. Why? And um, and she says, you know, my mom promises not to drink. And then she drinks. She drove off the road the other day. I keep begging her to stop. She says she will. So my, my sponsee and I, we just proceeded to share stories of um, how much we love our families. And how we drank when we didn't want to drink. You know, we explained to her as best we could that strange mental blank spot, that insidious insanity or plain insanity if you prefer. (laughs) Big book uses all kinds of different terms to describe that thought that precedes the first drink. It may show up as it's going to be different this time. Might not, might be no thought at all. Or it could be, the, you know, there's a great paragraph on a couple paragraphs on page 37, talking about that insanity, you know, um, it could be the deliberate drinking of, you know, I'm feeling myself justified by anger, nervousness, fear, jealousy, and the like, but even in that deliberate beginning, like the, the efforts, I don't care. I know it's not going to be just one or two drinks. I know it's going to be a bottle. I know I shouldn't drink. Um, I know I'm supposed to be sober, but I'm doing it anyway. Even in that type of beginning, it's insanity. Because I already decided I don't want to do this anymore. And afterwards, I'm remorseful. It's still a lack of choice. An insane action isn't a choice. It's an insane action. Thank God for sanity. Sanity. I didn't restore myself, man. I just, I just became broken enough to follow the directions in this old book. And became connected to this power that keeps me sane, keeps me whole, and enables me to be useful to others. That husband of mine, he's a normie. He can, um, he can have a couple drinks and then switch to water on purpose and <laughs> it's the weirdest thing but guess what he gets to have alcohol in his home today because he likes to drink once in a while and I don't live in fear I've received what this book describes that position of neutrality I get to be safe today not cocky about it I know I'm not keeping myself sober it's by the grace of God And thank God I get to be a good wife today. You know, we went on to describe to this young woman how, um, you know, the real alcoholics have lost that power of choice, can't simply decide I'm not going to drink and then follow through on that. And I'm not, you know, I'm a cat mom, but, you know, I I would think that the highest form of human power would be the love a mother or father has for their child. And that this young lady's mother probably loves her very much. That beautiful power can't stop her from drinking. Gotta be nice if it could. But we described to her that insane thought that precedes the first drink and the alcoholic's allergic response to alcohol that lends us no control. No dimmer switch (laughs) once we start going. Can't control how much we're drinking after that. And um, this young lady was super, super sweet. She, um, At the time, she was only 18 years old and told us that she had never taken a drink or a drug. Like the girl was just pure as a driven snow. She was super cute. So we invited her to come um, to an open meeting with us. And she came. And it was over at group three um, for Ross and um, hour and a half meeting. She sat next to me the entire time like this. And um, and after the meeting, we walk outside and I'm like, so what did you think? And she goes. You guys laugh about stuff that's not funny. And I'm like, I know, sweetheart, we do. We laugh about stuff that's not funny. We understand each other. We alcoholics understand each other. We are uniquely qualified to help the next alcoholic. And let me tell you, they're everywhere and they need help. In um, February of 2020, I believed that online sponsorship would not work. It sounds like half measures because I had some friends who had already been using online platforms to work with people who lived in other areas. Um, And I'm like, that sounds weird. Like, why would you do that? That sounds like half measures. You need to be face to face. And then March, 2020, the pandemic hits and I'm like, okay, how does zoom work again? And, um, and thank God I was wrong. Thank God I was wrong. This message, this power, transcends whatever kind of platform we're trying to use the spirit is not bound by walls or time i get to meet someone who's suffering like this we crack open the book we're in the same room we're in the same room it works it works and through the magic of this i've gotten to meet people who live all over the place and um, I've gotten to, to be more useful than ever, I get to work with more people than ever, meet them on Instagram or Facebook <laughs> or on Zoom. And those people help save my life. It's what it's all about. It's all about being useful. Steps one through nine aren't the work. Steps one through nine prepare us for the work. But the more I practice 10, 11, 12, the less it feels like work. I'm just beyond grateful, beyond grateful that this this works and um, I get to be a whole different person than I used to be. The the abstinence is the least interesting part of recovery today. It's a no-brainer. It's not my doing. I'm not proud of my sobriety. I'm grateful for it. And the rest of it, getting to help others, getting to be useful, getting to be a better wife, a better daughter, a better friend. I'm overpaid really, really grateful. So my sobriety date remains October 15th, 2013. Thank you so much, Grace Group, for having me. And um, I think that's more than enough out of me. I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks, Jeannie.